Cosmic Salon. Today it is my great honor to have Tony Peak in the salon with me, and he has written some extraordinary books, has an amazing podcast in the world, all of which you may find at uh, anthonypeak.com. His books are The Out of Body Experience, Opening the Doors of Perception, yes, yes, The Immortal Mind, Science, and the Continuity of Consciousness Beyond the Brain, The Infinite Mind Field, The Quest to Find the Gateway to Higher Consciousness, and The Labyrinth of Time, The Illusion of Past, Present, and Future. All of these are uh, waters we swim in here at the Salon. So with that, I want to bring Tony on and have Tony bring forward just a small bio to where he is right now. So with that, welcome graciously, Tony, to the Cosmic Salon. Hello, Nish, and welcome. Um, I'm delighted to be involved in it. Uh, I'd just like to point out as well that there are two other books within that list as well called um, Is There Life After Death? The Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die, and also a book called The Dame and the Guide to Your Extraordinary Secret Self. Um, that uh, The first book came out in 2006, which was based upon an academic paper I wrote for the International Association of Near-Death Studies. But a little bit about me. Um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm from the UK. Uh, if you are listening in from the UK, you will you will, de- will you will sense certain intonations in my accent, which tells you that I I come from the area of the city of Liverpool, which is the same city that the the Beatles came from and lots of other musicians. I now live down in the southeast of England, but I've lived across the country. I left the area I was brought up in, technically known as the Wirral, way way back in 1973 when I went away to university and I studied sociology and history at the University of Warwick. Um, I then followed that with a postgraduate course at the London School of Economics in in management. Um, But all through my life, I've been fascinated by extraordinary human experiences. And it's been a a lifelong um, quest for me to understand the nature of human consciousness, what human consciousness is, how the brain creates consciousness, and what takes place when people have extraordinary experiences, such as out-of-the-body experiences, near-death experiences, lucid dreaming, the list goes on and on, and specifically one particular subject area I'm fascinated in, which is deja vu. Um, as I say, I have uh, three different publishers. Um, one of the publishers is based in the United States, which is Inner Traditions. I also have three UK-based publishers. And I did a count-up um, recently about the number of books that have actually been published in foreign language editions. 
Um, and believe it or not, there's about 28 separate books, all of which are in most major European languages and a number of minor ones as well. So it's been, I've had a comparatively successful writing career. And I think that I take a very unique approach to the subject. My approach is always, I always start with logic. I always start with the science. And then I always allow my readers to come to their own conclusions as to whether what I'm saying in my books makes sense or not. I don't make any claims about myself. I'm not channeling information from the planet Tharg. Uh, I'm none of these things. <laughs> it is pure, unadulterated science. And I always say to people, if there is something I say in my books that doesn't make sense, that has been contradicted by more uh, newer research, please follow up on this. And I'm quite pleased to say that this has been reflected in the number of academics that are now following my work, particularly young academics, who I've become a little bit of a, a father figure to. Um, and also, although I won't probably take the opportunity, I've been offered the place, uh, twice actually offered places to do PhD programs um, on the back of my research. It's that rigorously scientific, so it can stand peer-reviewed um, uh, analysis and everything else as well. So that's a little bit about me. That really pins down a very grounded foundation, which is a, a beautiful place when we're talking about things such as consciousness and liminal states, other states of uh, entanglement and all the stuff that can get very far out very fast for people. And so it's nice to have that as a base. Mm, my, my, uh, my approach has always been to try and explain in the best way I can, very, very complex issues, very, very complex research. I particularly am fascinated by the implications of quantum mechanics and quantum physics. I'm also fascinated by uh, neurology, neurochemistry, how the brain functions. But unlike a lot of writers in this field, I really do invest time in understanding the quantum mechanics. You won't get vacuous statements from me about quantum healing and nonsense like that. <laughs> you will get the real deal. So if you want to talk about, um, I don't know, quantum entanglement, I can go as deep as you like in terms of what quantum entanglement means. I'm also quite fascinated by the implications of the what's rapidly developing to be a very great area of interest with a lot of people, which is um, the idea that this is some form of simulation. Yes. And it's a holographic simulation. And again, in my forthcoming book, which will be my 12th, which will be due out um, next summer, which I'm halfway through at the moment, I'll be dealing with the, the hard science, why it is that some of the world's greatest minds from Stephen Hawking to Craig, Craig Hogan at the Perimeter Institute to Jacob Beckenstein have all been arguing that there is over fairly powerful evidence that what we think is physical reality is nothing of the sort. It's far more complex, far more interesting, and indeed far more interesting than any crazy ideas that people may have about the true nature of reality. You don't have to go to nonsense to have your mind blown because there is so much information out there from the science. The science itself is crazy enough without adding additional craziness. <laughs> indeed. And this is why I enjoy your work. <laughs> I oh, try to always bring things down into a way that's grounded for people. It's difficult in these waters because people do get very far out and sometimes we you have to reel them back in just to 
get some air and come mm. and come back to center. <laughs> I, th- I think in many ways the issue is, and it frustrates the life out of me, is that there is. I'm not necessarily saying that there is a a conspiracy by which the general public are not told about the outer reaches of quantum mechanics and what quantum mechanics tells us about the true nature of reality. But there is a distinct aversion within popular science, within, you know, sort of general broadcasts on radio stations and TV stations, to just really go to the level of really pointing out to the general public just how extremely strange reality is. There is this this kind of arrogance that we don't need to tell the masses because the masses won't fully understand it. Indeed, there was a book written a few years ago um, uh, by uh, two physicists at the University of um, California, um, uh, Rosenberg and Kuttner. And in their opening section on this book, and it was was a book on um, quantum physics meets consciousness, and these guys were both, you know, professors in their subject. They'd been researching it for years. They really knew what they were talking about. And when they said to their, their compatriots and their fellow quantum physicists that they were going to be bringing out this book, there was absolute horror. And the general idea was, you know, you can't give the general public this kind of information because it's like giving a child fireworks. You know, it's dangerous. But their argument was, but people have a right to know. You know, they do have a right to know. And when scientists, and we have a lot of scientists over here in the UK that are very popularist on the radio, who glibly make these huge statements saying that, oh, you know, we understand what the universe is. We've got almost everything sussed out. (laughs) When in point of fact, we haven't got a clue. You know, we know that 97% of the universe is missing. You know, (laughs) statement of fact, you know, they can't pretend. There is a wonderful term in English, you probably know it, hubris. yes. And hubris is pride before a fall. And I'm reminded here, way back in 1897, I think it was, um, uh, Albert Mitchelson, who was the guy that did the famous Mitchelson-Morley experiment to prove that the luminiferous ether didn't exist, was opening up a new um, wing of the physics, physics department at the University of Chicago. And he glibly said in this announcement, he turned around and he said, you know, we at the moment, we are so close to understanding everything there is about the universe and how physics work. And he said future generations of physicists will only be working out things to the sixth decimal point because there's nothing else to discover. And then he said, oh, yes, there are one or two slight issues we have on the horizon. We're not too sure about something called black body radiation, which we don't fully understand. And we also don't understand something fully called the electromagnetic, uh, the the uh, no, the, um, the the electrum, it's the, the, the effect when if you shine a light on a, a surface, atoms get kicked out. Oh, yes. The photoelect- photoelectric Photo, effect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he turned around and said, these are the two things that, you know, there are a little bit problems. Then in 1900, Max Planck comes along in Germany. And in yes. December 1900, <laughs> does his presentation to the, the physics department there and points out that the only way he can explain black body radiation is to say that energy is quantized. That is, it comes in bits. And then in 1905, Einstein comes along with his groundbreaking, fantastic year where he did three papers and explained the photoelectric effect by actually arguing that light was a particle and not a wave, or was both. Um, and everything then, the world changed. But most scientists and most people that you talk to these days are still stuck in the science of the 1890s. They don't realize what happened in the 20th century in terms of science and what we understand about the universe. Yeah, it's a problem that I think 
seems to have a base in who's funding what and pushing mm. what agendas. Let's talk about biophotons and internal light here for a minute and build a foundation from there. Uh, You talk about this extensively, so, and it was part of what I wanted to bring to the table today. Eternity, eternal life, and zero-point consciousness is where I wanted to structure this particular session with you as it moves into the ideas of deja vu and synchronicity. Okay, no, that sounds wonderful. So biophotons and internal light seem like a good stepping ground. Right. Okay. Now, the whole concept of biophotons is quite intriguing. And um, funnily enough, the first one of the earliest researchers in this area was a guy called Fritz Fritz Albert Popp. Wonderful name. Who (laughs) was one of the professors. These guys always have wonderful names. You know, there are friends of mine that accuse me of making them up. (laughs) <laughs> they turn around and say, there is no such person. I mean, for instance, we will touch on the work later if we're discussing deja vu of a friend of mine called uh, Dr. Arthur Funkhauser. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, yes. No, you can't be serious. Isn't and there's that a an amazing side, name? <laughs> oh, there's a wonderful side story here. You'll love this. But one of the things that people from the area I come from are known for their sense of humour. Um, it is a notorious thing that people from Merseyside have this incredible sense of humour. And I used to do a regular radio programme on the BBC Radio Merseyside. And there was one time when Art Funkhauser, who is in fact an American, but lives in Switzerland uh, (laughs) and was phoning in from Switzerland. And the compere I was working with, who's quite a famous guy who knew the Beatles and everything in Liverpool, um, a guy called Billy Butler. And when Art phoned in, you know, it's typical difference humour between the, 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 the British and the Americans. Art phones in and Billy Tart starts talking to him. He turns around and he says, Art, Art, I love your music. He said, when you did Bridge Over Trouble Water, your voice was just <laughs> incredible. But why did you split up with Paul Simon? And, and he's, going, he's going, no, 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 no. I'm Art Funkhouser. I think you think I'm Art Garfunkel. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it was just mad. Magical. But, but, going, but going back, uh, Fritz Albert Popp, yeah, he did a lot of research in the idea that um, there are different forms of photons. And there's, just to explain exactly what we mean when we use the term photon, photons, photons are things called bosons. They are subatomic particles that carry information. So effectively, like the Higgs boson, for instance, yes. is an example. And bosons are very, very strange objects because... In general, they don't have any mass. Um, And in particular case with a photon, for instance, they are very peculiar things. They are effectively the things that carry light, okay? And photons are strange because they can only ever travel at the speed of light. They cannot travel any slower. They can only travel at the speed of light, which always intrigues me as to how, when you switch a light on, how the light and the photons coming from your torch get from zero to 186,000 miles a second in no time at all, because effectively they cannot accelerate through to that. Um, Also, uh, they're called point particles, which means effectively they have zero mass. Now, if you have zero mass and you travel at the speed of light all the time, from your viewpoint, the world is very strange and the universe is very strange. Because you time, you live in a time, they exist in a timeless place. Time doesn't exist for them, nor do they exist in physical space because they are not physical objects. But these are the things that help us see the world around us. 
because in effect the photons of light are part of something called the electromagnetic spectrum, which is everything from gamma rays at one end to um, to radio waves on the other. And as an analogy, um, I once came up with the term, I called it electromagnetic chauvinism, which is the idea <laughs> that people believe that what they see is out there is real and is a one-to-one relationship with what is really out there. Yeah. When the reality is that what we see is literally such a small part of the electromagnetic spectrum. It's just the part of it that's visible light. Now, I wanted to explain to people what we mean by this. And I came up with the analogy that the Mississippi River in the United States starts in a tiny little lake up in Minnesota. um, And it runs all the way down through the middle of America and comes out in the Gulf of Mexico. If the electromagnetic spectrum was, was that river, um, everything we believe is really out there that we see is actually stimulated from one and a half inches around about 18 miles south of Hannibal, Missouri. Okay? So this tells us a lot about what reality really is and what photons are. Now, it is generally believed, all that happens with photons, photons are given off by atoms. When an atom is excited, when um, energy is given into an atom, it has to divest that energy somehow. And what it does is it fires out a tiny particle of light or electromagnetic energy, which we know as photons. And this is what we see. And this is what allows us to see everything around us. But there's been recent discoveries that physical bodies and biological structures also give off electromagnetic energy, which means they give off light. And particularly there's some interesting substances that give off light, such as uh, DNA. DNA DNA gives off light, as does um, the, 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 the nerves themselves around the body. When people talk then about your light body, it is not as crazy as it sounds because right. in effect your body does give off light and all the time you're giving off heat and heat is just another form of electromagnetic energy anyway it's it's in, it's infrared energy so the idea is well if biological systems can give off light what is this telling us about what we mean when we talk about biology and there is a guy that's doing fascinating research at the moment He was based in Hungary, but he's now recently moved to the United States called uh, Professor Istvan Bokken. And Bokken has been doing some extraordinary work whereby he's arguing and he's supported here by an Irish molecular biologist called John Joe McFadden, who's Professor of Molecular Biology at a university quite close to here in the University of Surrey. And they're arguing that consciousness itself is a field of electromagnetic energy that surrounds the neurons of the brain. So, in fact, consciousness may be light and may be related to light in some way, which is not at all surprising, is it? Because all the great teachings and all the great religious and philosophical teachings throughout the ages have said, you know, look for the light inside yourself, search out for the light, look for the light within. And it makes eminently good sense to me that this is part and parcel of the greater understanding of what the universe really is. And when everything comes down to its basic levels, everything is light. Everything is is energy. Could you spell Professor Bakken's last name for me, please? B-O-K-K-E-N. Okay. 
K-E-N. I want to make sure I dive into that. Well, for a very long time, you know that the, especially the New Age community has really grabbed onto the idea of the light body, as you were mentioning, and taken it into very interesting territory. But when we look back through the Vedas and other religions that uh, have deep roots, not that they don't all, they they do all, but I mean, some of these seem a little more internally based on this idea really start to shine when we start looking at these emerging sciences coming forth, validating mm. these experiences, this language around the light body and what light really is. And then we see it in, in spirituals and the spiritual music, this little light of mine, you know, mm. we mm. it's there all along. And here we now have science coming to be warm and cozy with it. It is, and it's so profoundly important because there's no reason why science and spirituality should be in conflict. Effectively, all spirituality is looking inside yourself for answers, and science is looking outside of yourself for answers. Um, and, of course, one of the, the, the major issues that, that, that I regularly debate and argue with materialist reductionist scientists, and they absolutely hate me for this, but I use their own science against them. And, you know, one of the arguments is the word empiricism, you know, mm, everything needs yes, to be empirically yes. proven. And I always point out to people that the actual basis of the word empiricism is actually from experience. That's what it means. And every scientist who who researches the natural world is interpreting the information they're receiving from the external world in their own particular way. And indeed, in my new book, I'm developing a concept I'm calling, I'm calling egregorions. Mm. And egregorions are subatomic particles that seem to come into existence when scientists think about them. <laughs> uh, and it's a classic example of this, um, without going into great detail, but it is a wonderful story that way back, I think, in the 1950s, they were doing research trying to discover some new subatomic particles. And they discovered a particle called the muon, which wasn't necessarily expected but a lot of scientists have been thinking that there should be a particle like this. And when it was discovered, uh, the professor of the department was a guy called uh, Eisenbard uh, Isaac Rabbi. And he was quoted as saying, who ordered that? As if the idea was that we consciously think about these subatomic particles and they happen. And of course, this is not as strange as it sounds, because... In my last book, The, um, the Hidden Universe, I discuss about egregorials, the way it seems to be that when people collectively think about things, they come into existence. Yes, It's as if the act of thought, and this again is not divorced from modern science, because there is the fact that we know that the act of measurement of a subatomic particle brings it into existence. You know, this is not denied by... Any quantum physicist really knows what they're talking about will say this. You know, until a subatomic particle or even larger particles now is actually measured by a measuring device. And one can from there argue what we're really talking about here is being seen by a consciousness that's looking at the measuring device. Because, of course, information on a measuring device, what's the use of a microscope? to use an analogy or a telescope looking at the stars, if there's not a human eye looking at it and 
a consciousness experiencing that light from the stars, for instance. And they know that subatomic particles, because of something called a twin slit experiment, yes. before subatomic particles are, are observed or measured, they are a wave of probability. They are a statistical wave of probability that a subatomic particle may be in one location or the other. But before it is observed, it does not exist. And this is such a profound point to be understood. It is at the point of observation or the point of, ma of, of measurement that the subatomic particle suddenly chooses to be in one location rather than another. And what is fascinating about this, the major argument, if you read most books on physics, they'll say, oh, you don't need to worry about this. We're talking here about photons and electrons. They're really tiny things. They don't, <laughs> they don't hit our real world. But the fact of the matter is, there's a guy called Anton Zeilinger at the University of Vienna now, I think. He used to be at the University of Innsbruck. He's been showing that large molecules do this. And I mean really huge molecules. I mean molecules like a buckyball, Buckminster fullerene. It has 60 separate atoms in it. Yeah. And the latest one, they've now, there's, there's one now, I think it has 800 Atoms in it. Yeah. Now, as I've argued, and I've done some calculations on this, and I stand corrected if anybody out there thinks I'm wrong on this, and I'm happy to be stand corrected, but I think I'm right in saying that the, the largest molecules that they've managed to show do not exist until they're observed are getting close to about 40% the size of a virus. And there's no limit to how far this size is going. The more they experiment, the bigger the objects are becoming. Mm. So let's just extrapolate for a second and think, right, just imagine if viruses come into existence on the act of observation. Yes. What does that tell us about COVID? <laughs> right. You know? This is actually a big point here. I mean, it's a major point. When we start looking at the idea of self-actualization through zero-point consciousness... This seems to be blanketing into all of that, uh, if especially when we're looking about co-production loops like outer space, which is outside of the single point, which is outside of yourself, in my opinion, and my uh, pull up to this information, especially when we're looking at things that seem seemingly dark as what's going on with the world around us. And if we ground it down into this idea of how consciousness, and I like how you're using the egregore as a springboard here of we feed it. Oh, totally. There is a guy that you really need to get on your show called Paul Eno. Paul and Eno. Paul Eno is, um, he's a New Englander and he has spent the last, what, 40 years, 50 years, maybe longer as a paranormal researcher. Now, he's an interesting character because he, he's an ex-Roman Catholic priest. <gasps> yes, I and, love those. <laughs> and he got, he got effect, effectively told off and left the priesthood because of his interest in paranormal phenomenon. Um, and he and his son um, now run, they have their own radio station, but he's also written a series of books. Now, one of the areas that Paul and I are both interested in is the relationship between the observer and um, what I call egregores, which are effectively entities. And he has come up with a, a fascinating idea, and he believes that 
egregores, we bring them into, well, I argue we bring them into existence, but then they become independent of us. Yes. And he's argue, he makes a wonderful comment where he believes that probably they are, they are creating themselves out of plasma. Now, plasma is another form of matter that really doesn't really exist on the planet Earth. It is the most common form of material in the universe. The sun is made of plasma. Um, and plasma exists in superheated situations, but it's not, it's not water, it's not, it's not matter, it's not energy, it's something completely different. And one of the things that um, I discovered recently after reading some of the historical documents, particularly historical documents written by the Sufis, who are the mystical tradition yeah. of Islam, they discuss entities called the jinn. yes. And if you read the Quran or you read the surahs, the descriptions are in, in, in that particular model, and of course it's a model, but these models have deeper truths in them, as we've discussed with Vedanta and everything else. You go further back, you know, the, these are the things we have lost information. We've not gained it. We're just misinterpreting what the things are trying to tell us, the books. And in it, they say that human beings, uh, angels were made of light, which is, again, interesting going back to your point yes. before. <laughs> human, human beings were made of mud. Mm. And the jinn were made of smokeless fire. Mm -hmm. And smokeless fire, to me, is a clear interpretation of plasma. Yes. <laughs> now, so could it be that when, and he, Paul even argues quite, quite succinctly, that these entities, when they become independent or when they come through from somewhere else, you know, you use the word before, and I love somebody who uses the terminology correctly, when you said the liminal areas, you know, the, 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 the border lines between realities when the egregores as i call them come through and they create themselves out of plasma they use human intention mm. to bring themselves into existence and then they can become independent of us but in order for them to continue they need sustenance yes and as yes. paul has argued the sustenance is fear mm -hmm. you know if we fear <laughs> them they feed off the fear and this, this makes rational and logical sense. So suddenly when you have poltergeist activity, it's feeding off the fear it's generating and it's bringing itself into existence, just like subatomic particles appear and reappear from the zero point field and from the quantum vacuum. It's the same process. And all I argue is that the scientists aren't thinking in this way. And the neurologists and the quantum physicists and the people who have extraordinary experiences, in the middle of all this, it's like a huge jigsaw puzzle, but in the middle is the evidence we need to really start understanding exactly what the real true nature of reality is and how it is that Nish and Tony, both of whom are, are conscious beings that are experiencing something come into existence because when you break down your brain, your brain is just electricity reacting with chemicals. How does that create niche? How does it create Tony? How does it create our hopes and our fears? Yeah. In 1999, a guy called um, David Chalmers, an Australian um, philosopher, stood up at an event at the University of Arizona and said that there's two big problems in science. There's the soft problem of science, which is how the brain works. And then there's the hard problem of how on earth the brain creates consciousness. And we don't know. <laughs> no idea. No idea. 
Well, this is why so many amazing minds are at this uh, journeyman point of springboarding into all the new sciences as we understand. It's always been our driving force looking back into the old sciences and even just to the idea of anything pondering outside of itself, that spark that we're talking about here. So let's pull all this into internal light as it moves into your idea of zero point energy, which is consciousness. Mm. This again is a developing field. Um, it's, it's a fascinating subject and it all comes down, well, the, the, how many ways can I go into this? And I think I'll start with it with something called object, orchestrated objective reduction, or ORC-OR. Now, ORC-OR is a, 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 an attempt to link consciousness with quantum fields and the zero-point field. And it was first postulated by two researchers. One of them is Sir Roger Penrose, who's the Rouse Ball Professor of Mathematics at the University of Cambridge, who, by the way, was recently awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics. Yes. Um, yes. So he's a top thinker in the world. And also another researcher called Professor um, Stuart Hammerhoff. And Stuart Hammerhoff is Professor of Anesthesiology at the University of either Arizona or New Mexico. I think it's the University of Arizona. Now, the reason they came together was that Stuart Hammerhoff is a very interesting man. He's an anesthesiologist, but like all anesthesiologists, there's one um, skeleton in the cupboard that they'd rather you didn't know about as a general member of the public. And that is that we know how anesthetics work in the sense that we, we know what they do. So when you give somebody total anesthesia when they have an operation and you knock them out completely, they know which chemicals do what and what chemicals they react with in the brain, but they have no idea why it is it destroys consciousness and conscious awareness. Yeah. They have no idea. Hammerhoff is an honest man and therefore has come to the conclusion that we need to understand more what it is that an anesthetics do in the brain which makes consciousness disappear. Because if anybody's had a sort of full anesthetic operation, what happens is you, you, you turn just off. disappear. Yeah. You turn off, yeah. don't you? <laughs> there's no dreaming, there's no anything. One second you're there and the next second you're waking up. Yes. yes. You've gone, you've disappeared. It's as if something's cut out a whole section of your life. Because even when we dream, we, we have a feeling of selfhood, we have a feeling of time passing in some way. So he wanted to know why this was. And he started to look into the neurons themselves, the neurons, the, the, uh, the cells of the brain. And he noted that the neurons themselves are held together. The structures in the neurons that are like the scaffolding of each neuron. And there, there's, there's something, there are things called microtubules. And microtubules are little, little, little pieces of tubulin. Okay. He then noticed something interesting. And this is when he got involved with Roger Penrose, because Penrose is a mathematician and somebody interested in quantum physics. He was wanting to know more about the conclusions he was making here. And Penrose and Hammerhoff worked together and looked at the structures of microtubules and found something extraordinary. They found that there are two sides to the microtubule, and either side of the microtubule fires biophotons in 
to the centre of the, the, the microtubule, which means that they are causing interference patterns. In other words, they're using light, all of them. Now, there are trillions and trillions of these in your brain, trillions of them. And they all seem to be using light in some way. And they're creating interference patterns. Now, interference patterns, the one thing that we use interference patterns for in the modern world are things called holograms. Yes. Okay. So the argument is, are the microtubules in your brain creating overall across the brain a massive holographic version of reality? And is this how we internally model external reality through the the stimuli of coming in through your eyes and sound and taste and touch are all being recreated in the brain? Because, of course, when you look at something, the image you are seeing is not the image that's out there. And I need to just track back a little bit just to make people really appreciate what I'm saying here. The photons we were talking about before bounce off an object and they enter your eye. And again, this is even more complex than this because the photon that left, say, your computer screen is not the same photon that enters your eye because as the photons move along, they hit in the air. They hit the, the atoms in the air, which make the electrons give off energy or take in energy. So they're not the same photons. So when you look through a window, for instance, and you think you're looking at the outside world. You're not. You're looking at an interpretation of the outside world that the photons are carrying. That's another aside. Okay. So the photon leaves your computer screen and then lands on your eye, goes through something called the aqueous humor, which is the jelly-like thing in your eye. And then it arrives at the back of the eye at a place called the retina. And the retina is like sensitive. Now, its postage stamp, it, it then creates an image on the surface of the retina, using the photons coming in, which is inverted and inverted and postage stamp sized. Okay, so by that point, it's still light. But the retina then converts the light signals into electric impulses. But those impulses then go down the optic nerve of both eyes, cross something called the optic chiasma, and then feed the real darkest part of the brain, the visual cortex, right at the back of the brain behind the ears. That then takes that signal, and remember, it's postage stamp size and inverted, and it converts it magically, and nobody knows how, it converts it magically into the three-dimensional, 3D surrounding image that you see of the outside world as you now look away from your laptop. Now, just for a second, and, you know, the people listening in here as well, listening to this interview, just look around you and realise that everything you're seeing is being created by your brain from a postage stamp inverted image. Mm. It is completely modelling that internally. There is nothing that you are seeing internally that comes from the outside world. So where is the light coming from? Mm -hmm. Where is the light you are seeing at the moment? Because it's not the light that hit your retina. Now, this is the same argument that when we dream. Where is the light coming from when we dream? It's again coming back to biophotons. It's again coming to these internally generated images that have been drawn up from somewhere else. Now, if that is the case, then the world we perceive is being created holographically by the brain using microtubules. Mm -hmm. 
The question is, where are the microtubules getting their information from? And there's the argument to say the microtubules, and I've discussed this in my books, and I think I'm the only person in the world that's talking about this. I may not be, but I know of nobody else that's joining these dots like this, Mm -hmm. that the microtubules themselves are drawing information. And this is what orchestrated objective reduction is about, is that the microtubules are very small. And within microtubules and within the neurons of the brain are things called synapses. Mm-hmm. There are synaptic gaps. These are the tiny gaps between the neurons. So a neuron is a long, thin nerve, all with its all its microtubules and everything else. And when, it, when you get to the end of the neuron, it then communicates with the next neuron along or with neurons around it, but it never touches them. What it does is there's a tiny gap called a synaptic cleft, and it sends out, depending upon the message it wants to send, it sends out a chemical or a group of chemicals called neurotransmitters. And depending upon which neurotransmitter is being transmitted is how the message is sent from neuron to neuron across the brain. Now, these, the synaptic gap and the size of the, the, the neurons, uh, the, the synaptic gap and the chemicals within this are so small that they're almost at quantum size. So it means that quantum effects can affect these signals that are going across the brain, which means that your brain is actually working holographically and it's also working using quantum physics effects. Now, where is the information coming from? Well, an associate of mine, and I've written a book with him, is a guy called Professor Irvin Laszlo. And Laszlo is world famous. Um, He's written lots and lots of books on the subject. And one of his previous books is called Akashic Field. Yes. yes. And Laszlo argues that the, the old concept, the whole Vedantic concept of the Akashic record, you know, from, from Madame Blavatsky and everything else, and yeah. from the old yeah. Hindu belief systems, which then fed into Buddhism. The idea is that there is somewhere an information field that contains everything, all information, all of your life, of all of your lives, whether you're reincarnated within lives, whether you live your own life over and over again, or whether you do both, which I argue you do both. Mm -hmm. And that there is this whole field of information. The question is, where is it? Laszlo argues, and I think he's quite right about this, is it's in something called a zero-point field. Now, the zero-point field is a form of energy that exists where there should be no energy at all. It's in what's called a quantum vacuum. Now, the quantum vacuum is like empty space. And what they've discovered is that, and it's, it's really interesting, this, is that if you take substances down to just above absolute zero, absolute zero is 2.73.15 degrees Okay, minus 2.73.15 degrees okay, uh, of, of Kelvin. It's so cold, no, it's uh, Celsius, sorry, or zero Kelvin. Now, the reason they call it absolute zero is that at that point, it is so cold that there is no energy available. In other words, any, all heat is, is subatomic particles moving around. Yeah. So when you feel heat, all it is is it's, it's electrons and atoms moving between each other and giving off energy. But they need energy to move themselves. 
So when you get to absolute zero, the atoms themselves stop moving and the molecules stop moving. They can't move anymore. And when they can't move, it means they're not generating any energy. Now, if that is the case and the molecules are effectively not moving and we know where they're located, it, it violates something called Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which basically says that you can either know the momentum of an object or its location, but you cannot know both. OK, at zero point, you can know both. So therefore, that violates that. So that is the first principle that says there's some other form of energy coming through. But scientists have now been able to take a substance called, I think it's helium-3, right down to literally within a hundred, million, a hundred millionths of a degree above absolute zero. And there's still energy there. So what is the energy coming through? And they believe this energy is zero-point energy. They believe that zero-point energy is the background to everything. And it's everywhere. It's in empty space. It is everywhere. And there is, a, believe it or not, there is a research group in Boulder, Colorado, that's working at the moment in trying to find ways of generating zero-point energy. Because if we can crack how we can generate zero-point energy, we're in the position where we will have unlimited energy to use. Okay, so this is going to be the biggest breakthrough that humanity will ever give when we actually discover this. But people know that zero-point energy can be proven at the macro level because there's something called a Casimir effect, yes. where if you place two plates together, when they're very, very close, they, they stick to each other. And that, they think, is the zero-point energy pulling them together. Okay, So they're working on this. Now, this zero-point energy is interesting because it could be basically information. It could be digital information, mm -hmm. zeros and ones. If it's digital information, this is where everything we see is encoded. It's literally the Akashic field of reality. So in other words, reality is generated upwards, not downwards. So when we think we are now looking at a three-dimensional reality here, our brains are drawing this information up from the zero-point field to project it outwards to create this illusion of a three-dimensional reality. Now, recent discoveries that have been made in relation to black holes and the way black holes function, the very fact that black holes seem to... Uh, you know, the principle of black holes is that a star collapses to such an extent. Well, we'll just take this one thing back. Escape velocity. Mm. Anything that's mass has mass generates a field of energy which holds it down, basically gravity. OK, the bigger the mass, the greater the gravitational field around it and the greater attraction it has to smaller objects so a smaller mass object will be attracted to a larger mass object why the moon goes around the earth and why the sun attracts the earth and the moon of course there's an aside here because they really don't know how gravity works and they argue that gravity works because it warps space time right how can, how can space time be warped what is space time being warped <laughs> into if it's been warped, I know they use this analogy, don't they? They say, imagine like a bed, bed, bed mattress and you put a heavy object on the bed mattress. The bed mattress sinks in and objects get drawn. If you put a littler object to where the larger object is and you let go, it falls into the hollow, the divot that's caused by the heavier object. But that's going into the mattress. 
it's a crap analogy, if I can use that term, because it doesn't explain anything. It doesn't explain anything. And again, you know, you catch them with their trousers down, scientists, when they start saying this. And I do this all the time. And I'll point this out and say, you don't actually know that. It's an analogy. It's it is theory. nothing more than an analogy. It's a, it's a theory. Yeah. So anyway, going back, so we, we've got the large objects, the large mass of objects. The Earth is a large object. And if anything needs to escape the gravitational pull of the Earth, it has to travel at 24,000 miles an hour. That's why rockets need to accelerate upwards. And when they get to 24,000 miles per hour, they reach escape velocity, which allows them to go out into space and into orbit. Okay. The a black hole is like a huge planet Earth, but it has been condensed to such an extent that its mass is so massive that the escape velocity, uh, velocity is greater than 186,000 miles per second which is light, the speed of light, mm -hmm. which means that light photons that we were talking about before cannot escape. They literally cannot escape from it, and that is why it's a black hole. And it sucks everything into it. Nothing can escape a black hole. If a black hole's in your vicinity, you'll be sucked into it. But the problem is the universe is believed to be an enclosed system. By that, it means there's nothing outside of the universe. Now, the, second, the third law of thermodynamics argues that energy cannot be destroyed. It can be changed, but it cannot be destroyed. They've recently discovered that information is a form of energy. Yes. Information yes. has mass, yeah. which means that if you take your laptop and throw it into a black hole, it means that information has been lost, which contravenes the third law of thermodynamics. Which means, as Stephen Hawking has argued, that black holes don't suck everything in. As somebody once said, black holes do actually have her. They give off radiation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And this radiation is information. It is the information and the data of all the objects that have been sucked into it. So, in fact, if you threw your laptop into the, lap, into the black hole, what would happen is effectively the black the the computer would split into two. There would be parts of it that would be sucked into the black hole, but all the information that's on that computer is spread out along the edge of the black hole in the event horizon, okay? Mm. They then subsequently argue that if you put all the black holes together in the universe and you extrapolate and think about this, it could be that all the information you need to create our universe is already there, and it's, it's data. Now, this is an... I don't know how they calculate this, but I think it was Jacob Beckenstein that did it, who died recently. And they said, imagine... And it's difficult to understand. The Big Bang. Remember the Big Bang? Well, yes. nobody remembers the Big Bang because nobody was there. <laughs> but the Big Bang, 13.8 um, billion years ago, everything came from nothing. How everything came from nothing is, again, one of those big conundrums of science how everything that physically exists at the moment was in a point, a, a, a point particle that was infinitely small. To get this, they believe from an infinitely small particle, and Bumini are infinitely small, smaller than you can even begin to imagine, yeah. contained everything. And then something happened. The problem is that something couldn't have happened because happen defines happening can only happen in time. So how, because time was created at the point of the Big Bang. 
So how the Big Bang happened is impossible because there was no time for it to happen in. Then we get the magical thing of the maths doesn't work. If you look at how the universe has expanded, they've got a big problem because it's expanded too far in the 13.8 billion years it's had to expand. So what they do is they come up with something they call inflation. (laughs) And inflation is this magical thing that from the first billionth of a second or whatever of the Big Bang, matter, everything started expanding outwards thousands of times the speed of light. They have absolutely no evidence that this is what happened. It's just that they created this to explain the observations they have. This is like me explaining, there's an English writer called Rudyard Kipling, and Rudyard Kipling used to write books called Just So Stories, how the the elephant got its trunk. And it's the Just So story, you know, the elephant got its trunk because it was stretching out to do all these things or whatever. They've no idea how that's the elephant got the trunk. It's the same with the Big Bang. And it's the same with inflation, when they came up with inflation, because it's, you know, they are coming up with an explanation to explain something they don't understand. I, I call this idiopathic science. <laughs> I use the term idiopathic precisely because you're probably aware. If you're somebody diagnoses you with idiopathic epilepsy, you'll go home and you'll go, I've got idiopathic epilepsy. That's interesting. And then you look up the word idiopathic. It means we haven't got a bloody clue. We don't know what causes your epilepsy, but you think you've got a diagnosis. And science does this all the time. So I'm calling this idiopathic science. So, So we have the black hole. Now, imagine the universe spreading out from the black hole for 13.8 billion years in every direction. So in fact, you've got this 26, 27 billion sphere like the inside of a balloon expanding outwards what they've calculated is that if on the edge the inside edge of the expanded universe there are tiny squares called planck squares now the Mm. planck length is the smallest length you can have okay in two dimensions yes so you have a point then you have a line which is two dimensions then you have a square which is three dimensions In three dimensions, the Planck square is the smallest bit of space you can have, okay? They then calculated how many Planck squares, oh, by the way, in Planck time is the smallest bit of time you can have, which is the amount of time it takes light to cross a Planck square or go the Planck length. They then calculated how many Planck squares there would be on the edge of this inside of the universe, They then calculated, how I've no idea, (laughs) how many bytes, bits of information you would need to describe the universe. And lo and behold, they're the same number. (laughs) Which means the universe is digital. And the universe is encoded and it's digital. And it's a simulation. Yes. And one final point here, one final point, I think, that if it's a simulation, there's one huge clue that sits in the sky and happens probably once a year somewhere on the planet, and it's called a total eclipse of the sun. Yeah. Because the moon is 800 times smaller than the sun, the sun's disk. And the sun is 800 times further away, 800 times away from from the earth than the sun, the moon is. So when the sun and the, when this moon goes in front of the sun, it obscures it absolutely perfectly. And nobody's ever thought of that. We look at total eclipses and go, 
wow, isn't that spectacular? Without ever thinking, hold on a minute, how is the sun being obscured absolutely perfectly yeah. by the moon? The, the, we know of other moons, uh, other planets. We know the moons in the solar system. Ours is the only moon in relation to the size of its planet that is that large. And not only this, but it is only since human beings have been aware, i.e. human consciousness has been aware, that that particular relationship of the 800 ratio has been in existence. Before then, the moon was further away or closer, I can't remember. So the sun, you'd see the ring of the sun around it. There's a direct relationship between the observers on this planet and and the sun. And, and, the, and the total eclipse of the sun. And I defy anybody to give me the odds statistically of that coincidence. Of course, you can do statistics and say anything could be a coincidence. Of course it could. <laughs> but it's just extraordinary. Okay. So this suggests that we are in some form of its simulation. In my latest book and my new book, I will be arguing that that information is being drawn up through the zero-point field into the microtubules, Mm -hmm. into the holographs that the microtubules create, which then creates the external world that we experience. And this is how the simulation works. This is extraordinary. And I follow this. The science aside and just standing over here in what is my apparent space, it makes sense from my journey into all of these avenues. There's... A couple questions and things I want to get nailed down for people that may find this chat is the idea of matter and the density of matter when we're talking about zero point and the point of cold versus moving up into the heat. Uh, And so I guess we could start there. Okay. Let's go back to some basic physics or physics as we understand the structure of things. Everything you see around you that's solid is made up of tiny particles called molecules. Yes. And molecules consist in turn of atoms. And atoms is originally from Greek atomos, which means indivisible. It means you can't break down anything smaller. Democritus, the Greek philosopher, was the first person to come up with the idea that everything is made up of little bits of things and they build up. Every atom is, if you, you, you know, the, the, the periodic table of the elements, every element is, is effectively an atom. It has, it's made up of lots of the same atom. When atoms get together and they create molecules, they, they create compounds, they create other things. But the actual um, the basics of matter are elements, and there's about 114 of them, something like that, that have been found in the universe. Each element is made up of an atom. Now, an atom itself, they believed until around about, I don't know, 1890, maybe slightly later, that the atom was solid. They believed it was a solid object. Until there was an experiment that took place, I think it was by Ernest Rutherford. And what they did was they fired um, alpha particles, which actually, I don't know what alpha particles are, but they fired these tiny particles at, at atoms of silver, of gold, I think it was. And most of them went straight through the atom, which they found quite peculiar. And then occasionally one of them would come bouncing back again. And they realized that the atom is mostly empty space. But there's a very, very hard, solid bit in the middle. 
and they called that the nucleus. They were then intrigued as to, well, there's the nucleus. What is the nucleus made of? And to cut a long story short, they, they realised that the nucleus would have to be made of two other objects, two objects called uh, the proton and the neutron. Yes. And they then thought, but what is the, the rest of the atom? What's the rest of the space of the atom made of? And they realised that the rest of the space are made up of things called electrons, which effectively free electrons are what electricity is. Okay, so you can get electrons in the air, you can get electrons everywhere, but also they spin round. And the original model was that it's like the solar system. In the middle, you have the tiny little nucleus and you have these atoms, you have these electrons whizzing round. Okay, and the, the electrons whiz round super fast. And that because they're going so fast, they give the impression that the atom is solid outside. It has a solid shell, but it's not. It's just these electrons traveling really quickly. They then realize that there's different numbers of neutrons and different numbers of protons and different numbers of electrons, depending on which, which you are. So, for instance, hydrogen doesn't, only has one proton and one electron. Okay. So I think it's proton, it's one proton, one electron, I think. And as they come together, more and more elements have more and more neutrons and more subatomic particles within them. But the atom itself is, and get this, this is the exact figure, is 99.9999999999996 empty space. Okay? It's like you're in an American football stadium, the biggest American football stadium you can imagine. And the nucleus will be a soccer ball in the middle of the stadium. And the electrons will be dust motes whizzing round at the top of the stadium or round the edges of the stadium. Yes. That's how much empty space there is, okay? <laughs> it's completely empty. But then it got stranger because they then discovered that the electrons themselves are incredibly tiny. They're, again, point particles like the photon. An electron has no extension in space. It, it, it's a point particle, just like the universe was ori originally. So they're incredibly tiny. But even the nucleus is incredibly tiny. But they've then found that the nucleus itself is not indivisible because they found the nucleus itself is made up of things called quarks. And there are six types of quark. Okay. And depending upon the mixtures of the quarks, by the way, it is quarks, not quarks, because <laughs> people get that wrong. The, yeah. guy that, yeah. the, the guy that invented the term quark was Murray Gell-Mann. And Murray Gell-Mann used the term from Finnegan's Wake, the novel by the Irish novelist yes. James Joyce. <laughs> and Murray Gell-Mann almost, and it's from a poem in there, Murray Gell-Mann always called them quarks. Now, it's his prerogative. He invented them. So if he wants to call them quarks, he can call them quarks. And I just go along with him. But people sometimes pick me up and say, Anthony Peake doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't even know how to pronounce quark. <laughs> I do. Okay. So we know that these tiny, and quarks themselves are point particles. So suddenly things are getting strange because the solid bit of what we believe is the nucleus of the atom is in fact made of point particles and the electrons are point particles. But if you put a load of point particles together that have are, are infinitely small, if you multiply inf infinitely small things together 
you still have infinitely small. That's how it works. Yeah. Where has sudden solidity gone? Because let's go back now. You're sitting on a chair, okay? Well, presumably you might be sitting on a chair. You yes. might be standing on one <laughs> leg doing yoga. I don't know. But you're sitting on a chair. The reason that you sit on the chair and you don't fall through it is not because the chair is solid. This is what people miss. You don't fall through the chair because of something called electrostatic repulsion. Indeed, you never touch anything. Your hands never touch anything. Even your physical body never touches anything in the external world. Because every all the atoms, you know, I was explaining about the atoms and the molecules, and I said that there's the outer circle where some of the electrons are whizzing. What they have there is they, they, they have an electrostatic field where they're, they're actually like magnets, whereby, you know, you've got two magnets that have got the same, either negative or positive. However hard you try, you can't get them to go together. That's electrostatic repulsion. And every atom is like a tiny magnet. And they should repulse each other. And they do. So your bottom is actually hovering over the chair you're sitting on at the moment. You're not sitting on it. So when people turn around, and there was a famous statement made um, by um, the guy that wrote the first dictionary, whose name always escapes me, the... the uh, uh, his associate was Boswell. Um, it'll come to me in a second. But he once refuted the idea that matter wasn't solid by kicking a stone. Mm-hmm. It was called the the, uh, redu- the, the, the ad lapidum, uh, reductum ad lapidum, the idea that you can dismiss by just kicking something and say, of course it's solid, I've kicked it. What an idiotic statement. Mm-hmm. He hadn't kicked anything. He just was <laughs> completely unaware. And people use that again as an example. So most people out there will say, of course it's solid, you know what nonsense is Anthony Pete talking? It ain't, okay? Now, on top of that, as we were saying before, all these subatomic particles, actually, before, as we said, with, with the atoms, they don't exist before they're observed. They don't exist before they're measured. So everything that we think is solid is made up of bits of nothing that come into existence when they're measured or observed. Yeah. Suddenly, in a puff of logic, the whole materialist reductionist world disappears in front of you. (laughs) And there is nothing I have said in the last 20 minutes that is not known science. Absolutely nothing. I've not exaggerated anything. I've not misinterpreted anything here. These are facts. Let's wind into the idea of feedback looping. And one of the things... Also, so let me backstep here. One of the things in my ponders has always been this idea of, and not just my ponders, obviously these are big ponders, uh, the idea of the outside, the outer space of a black hole where all that information's going on and then the idea of single point awareness, self-actualization and birth into consciousness from the blackness of the birth canal, from the darkness of the womb, that is a projection from the blackness of space in the brain and the optic of all that. And then, of course, we've already traversed the idea of matter. And it's always seemed to me that internally, the Big Bang Theory is, of course, to me, this internal process that creates that synaptic light 
show, like stars in the blackness of space. If we were in the brain, you know, we see all these bio luminous sparkles and all that blackness and all that black matter. And so where I'm coming at this is, and I guess a good way for you to hone in further on this idea would be, let's look at the idea of time and eternity and then push forward into feedback looping. Okay. Eternity, one of the most wonderful descriptions I I have ever read on defining eternity is from, um, I think it's an old Indian proverb. And it's in the center of a desert in the middle of India, there was a huge granite cube that was a hundred miles long and a hundred miles high. And every thousand years, a bird would fly over it. And in the beak of the bird, was a scarf of the finest silk you can ever imagine. When that bird and the silk has wound down that block to absolutely nothing, the first 10 billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second of eternity will have been. (laughs) And I always think that is the most wonderful example of getting people to realise what we mean when we talk about eternity. But the issue here has to be, what exactly is time? And now I spent 380 pages of a book, The Labyrinth of Time, trying to explain time. (laughs) And rather like St. Augustine, who famously said, I think I understand time till I really think about it, and then I haven't got a clue what it is. I felt the same. Because time is the most peculiar thing possible. It is the only thing I know that is measured by itself. Mm. You can have a pound of apples, uh, you can have 16 tennis balls, all these things. But a minute is a minute, And a minute cannot be used to measure another minute because your perception of a minute may be completely different to my perception of a minute. So clearly what we're here, and then we have to think, well, what exactly do we mean by time? Now, remember before I was was talking about um, the, the laws of thermodynamics, one of the major laws of thermodynamics is the law of entropy. And the idea that everything is in a state of order initially, then over time becomes more disordered, i.e. its entropy increases. So in which case, you know, I'm, you know, in terms of my age now, my body is now the body of somebody about to be be 67 years of age. And when I was 14 or 15, my body was in a greater state of order than it is now. So we become more disordered everything is becoming more disordered. You take an egg and you smash it. You've increased the entropy of that egg. And the same is the argument, this is what time is. Time is not what we think it is. We think it is, it is something moving through, but it's not, it's, it's entropy. And then there's another an important point about time. And it was something that was first put forward by uh, an Irish aeronautical engineer called J.W. Dunn. Uh, back in the in 1927, when he wrote a book called An Experiment with Time. And Don said, let's think about time. Marcus Aurelius said that time is a river, and you can never put your foot in the same river twice. But if time is a flowing river, 
The reason we know a river is flowing, as we should know that time is flowing, is because there are riverbanks. There are static riverbanks either side of a river, and you see the river flowing. But if time is the river, what are its riverbanks? What is it that we measure time flowing by, by, if that makes sense? People can say we measure time by a clock or a watch. No, we don't. We're measuring distance when we look at a clock or a watch or sequence. We're not measuring time itself. So what can you measure time by? And the only thing you can measure time by is another time, isn't it? You know, if you have another time that's running slightly slower than this time, that can be your relative gauge as to how time is flowing. Uh, And again, Dunn came up with this concept of serial time. But it became an infinite regress because it meant that the serial second time needed another time to, to, for it to be measured against. So we almost get back again to what time is. And in the final analysis, as Einstein himself said, time is an illusion, but an incredibly persistent one. Because time, and this is where it gets weird, we now know within physics and from Einstein's theories that time and space are the same thing. So when we think of space, we think of the stuff around us. And when we think of time, we think of time as a ticking clock. But space-time is the same thing. For instance, the closer you get, and I mentioned earlier, the closer you get to the speed of light, time slows down for you. Effectively, what is happening as you get closer to the speed of light is something called the Lorentz contraction, which is effectively... As you get faster, time turns into space. So suddenly there's more space and less time. And this is why you can never, ever get to the speed of light within our way of doing it, because you would have to have infinite mass in order to do that. Okay. Now, this is intriguing then, because it means that space and time are the same thing. And if space and time are created, if space, and let's just think about space for a second, let's, not, let's forget about the, the zero-point field for the moment, and let's forget about the quantum vacuum. Space is by itself and by definition empty. So, for instance, as Ernest Mack and uh, Leibniz, the great Russian uh, German philosopher, said, imagine there are only two planets in, in space, say the Earth and the Moon. What happens to the space around the Earth if the Moon disappears? Because remember, space is nothing. There isn't anything in space. Space is just the distance between things. If the moon disappeared, space would contract down to being just the Earth. And then if the Earth disappeared, where does space then go? Space is the container that everything is within. But if there's nothing within space, space itself disappears. But this is where Einstein got rounded by saying space-time is, is, is something we all exist within. And it was a very clever way of doing it because otherwise there is no way of gauging motion, is there? Because the only way you know something is moving, it's moving relative to you. But if it's out in space, what is it moving relative to then? And this is where they had something called the luminiferous ether, which Mitchelson, the guy, Albert Mitchelson, the guy I talked about before, was the guy that made the crazy statement that there was only six decimal points. He was the guy that disproved that. So suddenly even space becomes more mysterious and time becomes more mysterious. And for me, what is central to my hypothesis, which I call cheating the ferryman, 
is that time is completely and utterly relative. It's relative to all of us. We all have our internal perceptions of time. And I'll guarantee you know it, Nish, and I would guarantee that most listeners will know it. You're given bad news. Suddenly time goes, you'll fall, you fall off a horse. People tell me this all the time. Time slows down. You are in a car crash. Time slows down. You fall off a building. Time slows down. The amount of cases of suicide survivors that jump off the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. I think 90% of the survivors describe that as they're falling, time starts to slow down. It took them forever to hit the water. This is because time changes. And if you think you are going to die, time changes completely. It slows down. It's a known fact. It's one of the traits of the near-death experience. It's one of the moody traits, and it's one of the Grayson scale. Bruce Grayson was the guy that came up with the Grayson scale. So clearly, time, again, is not what it seems. So already, listening to this program, you've realized that time is not what it seems. Space is not what it seems. Matter is not what it seems. Consciousness is not what it seems. And in fact, reality is not what it seems. I speak about this a lot. I, at first, experienced that slowing down in a couple accidents when I was a child and then was able to move further into that as different things appeared to happen in my life and then was able to access it through breathing practices, yogic stuff, Wim Hof stuff, and uh, working with my internal physics. And so it's something I'm exploring personally and the idea of eternity has always fascinated me because I've never been able to cancel out the idea of it. Everything to me seems to be eternity. And the more of the physics that come to lay on top of Everything else that has been constructed around us, the construct, it does seem to fall into this from my own personal experience of having been in those experiences of timelessness where everything was stretching in a way. Uh, And one of the stories is when I was very young, falling from a tree. So I'm, I'm not going to give the whole story there, but when I fell, the ground came up to me. I was very, 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 very far up. And, you know, it was a joke. And it was a situation, like it was a big deal once I did hit. <laughs> uh, however, but the experience has never left me that I felt as if I did not go anywhere and the ground came to me. And that really changed my perception of the world around me. Mm, That's a very good point, isn't it? The idea of relativity again. Yes. The idea of you, the ground came up to meet you. That's a wonderful example, isn't it? Well, it is. And I wouldn't have, that that wouldn't have been a point of consciousness for me had I not had that direct experience. And so therefore Mm. now, pardon me, we're in the field of observation again. 
Mm. right? That created that spark. And so I've heard you talk a lot about this idea of the near-death experience and the DMT release that goes Mm. on that stretches this out. And so the looping idea. So I want to take this and kind of look at this idea of the weirding that's going on. So walk with me here, Tony. The weirding, okay. yeah. the weirding that it, the parent weirding that's going on within this idea of where we are is a collective consciousness, that which is outside of us that we seem to somehow be participating in, at least the Vesica Pisces of it, where we're overlapping, and how there is a a dramatic shift in the flavor of reality currently, in the mood, in the vibration, in the actual bending of light of reality that's creating a very dramatic outer world. And so with these ideas of neuropathways, of light in darkness, what are you finding as words strung together into language to describe the craziness outside in the collective right now? What's generating all this? I tend to think along the lines that we try to give meaning to things that there may not be meaning to. There is clearly something peculiar going on at the moment. And I would suspect it's probably fairly unique within human history. But as a historian, one of the things I am aware of, particularly as a historian of ideas and the sociology of ideas, and the sociology of scientific development, is that every generation that I know of, particularly the generations that are interested in the kind of things that we're interested in, feel that their time's are not necessarily the end times, because that's probably the wrong term to use in these particular circumstances, but times of great change. And I think that we misinterpret those times of change as being a collective time of change, when in fact, it's you that's changing. Now, I think your point was an incredibly powerful one about the idea of we are all one single consciousness experiencing itself subjectively, which the famous Bill Hicks dialogue mentioned yes now i contributed a chapter many about five or six years ago to an amazing book called pandeism and anthology which was edited by a guy called kanuji mapson and the basic concept of pandeism is that effectively we are a singularity and that everything is a singularity yes now again going back to the idea of the point particle that the big bang started in if effectively everything that exists in the universe was within a singularity point, it means that everything in the universe is technically what is known as entangled. And entanglement is when two subatomic particles are put in the same state and then they are placed in different locations. If you do one thing to one particle, the other particle immediately realises that the other particle has something's been done to it and it modifies its condition or its state or whatever. Now, the the argument would be that every single subatomic particle in existence 
was at one stage part of that singularity. So I'm almost contradicting myself here, aren't I, by saying that we're kind of individuated emanations from a greater something, the collective unconscious, as Jung would call it. But there is a feeling at the moment of great concern and disassociation. And I think one of the major issues that is coming across with my extended group is that there are some of us that are striving for understanding and at one with everybody else and trying to understand the human condition and thinking very deeply about what is going on. But the vast majority of our fellow human beings don't give a damn about it. It is not of any interest to them whatsoever. As long as they can have their bigger cars and their bigger houses, it doesn't matter. I, I, I saw a quotation. Do you watch Game of Thrones at all? I loved it. Okay. Do you know the, the actress that took off Daenerys Targaryen? I love her. Okay. She posted something on Instagram a few days ago. And it was a quotation from her father. And her father told her to never, ever take the opinion of somebody whose television screen is bigger than their bookcase. <laughs> and I thought that was so good. <laughs> and it defined in perfection exactly the way I see the world. Yes. There is there is an effect out there at the moment called Dunning-Kruger. Have you heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? Yes. Okay. Just for the listeners, the Dunning-Kruger effect is the idea that the, most, the, the less knowledgeable you are and the more stupid they are, you are, the less you're aware of your stupidity and you believe you know far more than you do because you are completely unaware of the things you don't know about. So you think you know everything. And I see this rampant at the moment on social media. Everywhere. There are people yeah. pontificating about things and spouting complete and utter nonsense. With deep conviction, I might add. Correct. And this is dangerous, isn't it? And I think what has happened is that we've got the double whammy of social media, which means that everybody is able to find their own box rattle. They can find people who agree with them. And instead of actually interfacing with the general public and people as we normally do, they reduce themselves into echo boxes and echo chambers that just echo their own belief systems. And it's very dangerous because what it means is we're no longer in a position where we can convince people by logic and by reasoned argument of our position. You just get shouted down. And, of course, on social media, it's even worse because, of course, there's sharp bursts of comments. And I think society is changing rapidly and suddenly we're becoming more insular we're becoming less accommodating of other people's feelings. We're becoming more racist. We're becoming, because somebody is different in some way, therefore they're my enemy. And it is extremely worrying. And society seems to be breaking apart. You know, suddenly we are in a world where we categorize ourselves by so many different things. And we, cat and we are, have our own little groups you know, um, I think it's in, in Italian. Italian, they have a term called paese, which is my village. And it's the idea of I protect my village. Well, probably what you start off with is, you know, I'm English. 
And that's my engine group. And then you reduce that down and say, well, actually, I'm a oh, scouser, yeah, which right, is the right. term I'm from Liverpool. And then <laughs> you go, County, darling. <laughs> and, uh, right. And then you go in and you say, OK, I'm, you know, I'm of my family, I'm on my tribe or my group. Then I'm on my family. And we just reduce ourselves down and the enemy just comes in further and further. Yes. And, it, and it's dangerous. It is so dangerous. It's appreciating. It's a lack of empathy. Yeah. It's a lack of understanding. One of my favorite writers, and you're probably where I wrote um, um, a biography of him, is Philip K. Dick. Yes. And one of his novels, the original novel that Blade Runner, the movie, was based upon, was a short story. It was a novel called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And one of the themes of that novel, which doesn't appear in the movie, is a religious group um, called uh, the Mercers. They follow somebody called Mercer. Yeah. And then Mercerism. And Mercerism is about empathy. And it's about whether you can appreciate the pain of somebody else. And, of course, that's the central concept of Blade Runner itself. It's the idea of whether the replicants are human. And the idea of being human is being able to understand the position of somebody else and the pain they feel. And we're losing that as well, you know, and it it is dangerous times. I just hope that people like ourselves, that the message we're trying to get out it's going to get out there further. And I just hope that maybe broadcasts like this and everything else will assist us in doing that. It, that's my hope as well. And that these types of chats loop out rather than get controlled in and then canceled. Uh, it's mm. very dangerous. And, and it's dangerous, isn't it, that what we are discussing here could be, could fall foul. Yes, of 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 censorship and everything else as well when in fact we're not saying anything controversial we're in fact <laughs> saying quite the opposite we um, started this whole thing off with we're looking and grounded at scientific realities that are generating the experience we're having and really trying to stay grounded and yet now we find ourselves sadly in a realm of well where the heretics are Mm, we are yes. the heretics now. Well, it's, it's rather curious, I find, the way in which this kind of uh, compartmentalism happens is in terms of my own position, in that I would have believed that because I'm trying to build bridges between science and spirituality, that my ideas would be accepted by both groups. And in point of fact, it is not the case. Right. Indeed, I was talking to a fellow academic of my friend of mine that's been on my podcast recently, Professor Istvan Bokken, uh, not Istvan Bokken, uh, Professor Imans Barouche, who is um, a professor of philosophy at a university in Canada. And we were both agreeing that, in fact, it's like we're stuck on a bridge where we're trying to build the bridge, but while we're trying to build the bridge, both sides are throwing stones at us. Mm -hmm. Because I'm very, very sceptical. I'm a great sceptic. I do not believe everything I'm told. I very much work on the diktat of have an open mind, but not an open mind enough that your brain falls out. Yes. And I'm very hypercritical, and I'm very hypercritical of the individuals in our particular worldview that manipulate the worldview, the people who pretend 
that they're channeling information from <laughs> ascended masters and then charge huge amounts of money for doing so. Yes. I'm also very dismissive of supposed mediums who prey upon the, the people who have lost loved ones mm, and make emotional. money out of it. Yeah. And the emotional areas that go in this. Mm-hmm. And I find that this also upsets me a lot because it will be the case. Our world will always attract the snake oil salesman. Yes. It is by its very nature that will happen. It's the question of whether people can differentiate between rational, sensible, logical argument and crap. And people can't. There seems to be sometimes there seems to be this stopping point where people just desperately want to believe. And it's like at the moment, people are desperately wanting to believe that there's some kind of huge worldwide conspiracy going on and the elites are manipulating everybody. And this is because people are so frightened that they would prefer it that the world was being manipulated by evil elites rather than realising the world has been manipulated by no one because nobody has an idea what's going on and everybody is terrified. And even the elites themselves, the fact that they are trying to manipulate is because they don't know what's going on either. And they're all scared. That's so the kernel. This, That's the actual yeah, kernel here. It's fear. Here. Yeah. Now, the thing is that, funnily enough, I'm not scared of anything because I believe that my worldview works. And I mean, that might sound arrogant, but for me, my, my writing of my books has been my search for understanding of what I am and who I am and why I'm here. And I believe that from my writings, I've come to the conclusion that it works for me. And it comes back again to the argument, and I've been write, and writing about this in my new book, and I've been writing about this today, again, coming back to the egregorial that we create our own reality in many ways. And in doing so, we attune ourselves to our environment. And once we realise that we are part of a greater something, but we're also individuated, suddenly there's a freedom there. I don't fear death because my logic tells me that death is not the end. Yes. And it tells me this because my model, which is called cheating the ferryman, is completely scientific. Yeah. And it takes place in a living brain. You are immortal within a living brain. And that seems to be a contradiction that people cannot grasp. I don't have to pl- make out that when you die, you become a spirit and you float around and everything else. That's not my hypothesis. It's to do with time. We, we die, die in time. time. Yes. You need to be in time to die. But when When you die, you fall out of time. Time, as we were saying before, is an illusion. Mm -hmm. Therefore, your death is an illusion because you can only ever die in time, if that makes sense. It does. And this is where my ponders are as well. And the idea of time travel through already associated neural pathways within the blackness of the brain. So what I mean by that is if you can sketch a loose scale of your life with the key events that stick out that you believe are real, that really happen, that hold that uh, gravity, right? Your memories Mm. that are dust really, but they hold that Mm. gravity and there's a spark of something there. 
And then, and this is just on the mic, the micro, uh, not the macro, which is what's so exciting, I think, is, again, it's fractals, though. So falling out of that tree, it was so visceral, it was so real, that that memory's never left me. The mm. idea of that memory lives on and is is a light in the blackness of my internal sky. It's a star in my internal sky. And because it is a light and I apparently experienced it, I am able to re-experience it by sliding back into the experience. Does this ring mm. any bells for you? Very much so. It's the it's it comes back to something I've spoken about many times and I did an event 18 months ago, and I'll be doing an event, hopefully, when lockdown comes about <laughs> in Greece next year. And it's the concept of Plato's cave. Yes. Uh, now, Plato the philosopher, we probably know about the platonic forms, the idea that yes. this is some form of projection. I mean, when you think this was what the ancient Greeks were writing, the, the, the ancient Greek mysteries, the Eleusian mysteries, is what they believed, is that this is all a projection, this is all an illusion, and that there is a real reality behind this reality. And within that reality, which is technically known as the uh, Pleroma uh, by the Gnostics, within that reality is the, the true image of everything. So for instance, within this world, there is a cube but the real cube that all of the cubes are facsimiles of exists somewhere else, and it, we're in the projection. Now, Plato wanted to convey in greater detail exactly what we mean by this, and I'd argue that when you fell out of the tree, you were, one of the, you were the prisoner, and I'll, I'll explain this in a second, what I mean by calling you a prisoner. I'm not being derogatory here, but it'll make sense in a second, is that Plato asked people to imagine a group of prisoners that from the moment of their birth, they are held in a cave and they are secured in such a way that they cannot properly move their limbs and their head cannot move and all they can do is stir at the back wall of the cave. Immediately behind them is a walkway, a raised walkway. And behind that raised walkway from their relative position is a fire that's, that's, that's stoked and burning and the other side of the fire is the entrance to the cave. On the walkway, occasionally people walk along and the people are carrying cardboard cutouts of animals, of planets, stars, chairs, everything that is in the external world. So the people, the prisoners, looking at the back wall will see the reflections, the shadows of the cardboard cutouts on the wall. And because they've never known anything different, that is what they believe the world is. The world of perception that they believe is the external world are just shadows on the cave. They're not real. Now, what happens is one of the prisoners, Plato asks us to, to imagine, manages to break free of his shackles. And he turns around and he sees the walkway and he sees the people on the walkway and he sees the fire and he walks past the fire to the cave entrance and he sees the world as it really is he sees the sky he sees the sun he sees the trees he sees all this amazing reality and he walks back into the cave and he goes back to his fellow prisoners and says hey guys you know what you think is reality it's not i've seen it 
I've empirically experienced the real reality. And of course, the reaction of his fellow prisoners are, you're mad, you're crazy, you're mentally ill. The shadows on the cave are all there is. And he says, but there is, but he can't release them from the, sh- from the shackles to show them. So they continue believing. So he ends up being considered to be a madman. Now, when you have an experience like you experienced, or when people, what I are, when in, in my book, uh, Opening the Doors of Perception, I call it the Huxleyan spectrum. It's the idea that certain people under certain circumstances can escape the cave and they can see reality as it really is. Yes. And by this, I would argue people who have classic migraine, people who have Alzheimer's, people who have experienced temporal lobe epilepsy, people who take substances such as DMT. These individuals, for some reason, the, 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 the brain's ability to attenuate reality. Henri Bergson was a French philosopher who, who very much argued that the brain acts as an attenuator. It takes information out. It doesn't put information in. It gives us sufficient information in order for us to function within this environment. But sometimes people get access to information of the broader, wider world, the broader reality that we've been talking about today. And they become the escape prisoner. And that's what you became. You became an escape prisoner. You saw a glimpse of the something else. Albeit as small as it was, it opened your eyes. It opened your doors of perception to realize that there's more than this. But then again, we coming back to our analogy of the, 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 the people on the planet at the moment, the vast majority of them are the prisoners, and it's all they believe, and they're insistent that that's all there is, are the shadows on the cave. And unfortunately for them, the shadows on the cave are real, and if the shadows on the cave tell them to do something, they will do it, which means to the detriment of people like you and I who are trying to enlighten them. And, of course, look at the word enlighten. It literally means to bring light to, because they'll think we're crazy. And the reason they think we're crazy, and this is going back to the point I was making before, is because there are too many snake oil salesmen, charlatans, and people who talk complete banal rubbish that are in our movement. And, And as long as we have those people and give those people platform, we will never, ever break through to the majority, because all the majority ever see are the snake oil salesmen. And of course, the critics of what we are trying to do always use the snake oil salesmen as their examples, because they're the easy targets. They're the straw men that can be attacked. For instance, on four occasions now, I have been invited by sceptical societies of universities to give speak, give a talk. And each time, they obviously thought that they were going to get some kind of new age wacko. And they were really keen to have a bit of fun. And without exception, three or four days before, there's some lame excuse as to why the event can't take place. Mm -hmm. And I know exactly why that is the case, because they checked me out. Yes. And they suddenly thought, whoa, I didn't, I'll give you a classic example of this. I did an event in New York. 10, 12 years ago now, Roosevelt Hotel. 300 and odd people turned up. And halfway through my talk, 
I, w- I was describing my hypothesis of near-death experience and everything else, and I was dropping in various quantum physics phrases and, and descriptions, but I couldn't describe them in any great detail. And this, in the middle of my talk, this guy stood up, and he said, can I have your attention, please? He said, I think you're a charlatan, and all these people are being conned by you. And he said, for instance, I'm going to expose you now. I'm a professor of physics at Princeton University. And I want you now, without any reference, to explain to me Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So I did. (laughs) And the look on his face was an absolute picture. It it was as if suddenly he was standing there with no clothes on. And I then said to him, and I said, and am I right? And he said, yes. (laughs) And I said, can I talk to you after the event? And he ran away. (laughs) He ran away. And that is what happens. They are suffering from this hubristic worldview that they know more than anybody else. Now, I'm no genius, but I make it my business to understand. And because I have quite an extraordinary memory an extraordinary memory recall. And I think I have fairly good abilities in terms of analyzing information and reprocessing that information in a sensible way, that I'm their greatest fear. Yes. Their absolute greatest fear. And this is why I'm not more famous. This is why my work gets excluded. This is why I get invited to certain events, but not others. Yeah. And it's because... They don't know how to deal with me. They really, really don't. And on top of that, I'm a very aggressive working class person from Liverpool. And we have a reputation for being rather hard and rather tough. So there's also also this nervousness about me. They they think, ooh, you know, if I cross him, is he going to beat me up? Um, So we have this double whammy of that I can be quite aggressive in a very pointed way. I don't swear. I don't denigrate people. But when I go for somebody, I go for them and I have no mercy, (laughs) particularly if they start it. (laughs) Well, self-actualization, I mean, that's at the core again from that inertia. And I think this is, I know we have to be cognizant of the time you've allowed to be here. Yes, we've got 10 minutes. So... Instead of wanting to dive into something that will take longer than that to experience uh, a proper dive into, I kind of want to just wrap it on the idea of artificial intelligence. Now, I know that's another show, but we are talking about it. And in the new works you're doing, are you specifically addressing the way in which this apparent holographic reality is playing around us through sentient, the sentience of what is called AI. Big problem with AI is something called a substrate problem. And the substrate problem is, and I'll give an example of this. Say I had a super machine whereby I could scan your brain and I could scan your brain down to the molecular level. In fact, scan your brain down to the subatomic level. And I could then digitize all that information to that degree, kill you, and then upload that information onto a supercomputer? Yes. Is that you? (laughs) And the question is, no, it's not. Well, logical would conclude it's not. And the reason it's not is because we're confusing 
the map with the territory. Yes. In other words, people will turn around and say, we can scan a human brain and we can ask a person to imagine playing tennis. And then we can, using an MRI scan or a PET scan, we can then show which part of the brains light up when the person thinks about certain things. Therefore, we've proven that that's where consciousness is. And of course, it's not the case. If I take the back off an old valve radio, when that radio is on, there'll be certain areas that will be lighting up in the valve radio. It doesn't mean that the radio studio is in the valves. Right. And this is the quest. This is the problem that science and particularly neurology has now, and particularly cybernetics, because they're assuming that because you can ha- create a machine that can play chess better than Boris Smasky or, or Fisher, Bobby Fisher, it doesn't mean the machine is thinking. It, machine, it means that the machine is following certain algorithms that it had been programmed to do by a human mind. Okay. Now, there is something, John Searle, I think it was, came up with something called the Chinese room problem. And it was a very clever game whereby you place somebody inside a sealed room who only speaks English. And he has with him uh, a series of documents and instructions of how to understand what Chinese symbols mean. And somebody outside the box who is unaware of the fact that the person inside doesn't speak Chinese feeds in through the box, through a slit, Chinese words. And then the person inside then looks at the Chinese words, looking at the algorithms he's been given, then turns around and says, right, okay, that's what this means, and then puts the English message out through the slot. Given time, the person will believe that the person inside the box can speak Chinese Mm. or maybe Chinese, but he's not. He's following algorithms. And this is the problem we have with AI. It's whether AI can ever become conscious and even more importantly, self-referentially conscious. Yes. And this is the substrate problem. And the question I've always said on this is consciousness within the brain. Consciousness supposedly is created by the interaction of subatomic particles in electrical fields within your brain. So where does consciousness come about? Does it come about by the addition of one molecule and then suddenly consciousness is there? Or does it kind of gradually appear? But how does consciousness gradually appear? How does the awareness of being something, experiencing something, just spontaneously occur from inanimate atoms? How does that happen? And it's the same problem that takes place in a computer. It could it be that suddenly consciousness will just spontaneously download into a computer, into its cybernetic works. But if it does, it's coming from somewhere else. And if it's coming from somewhere else, where is that somewhere else? And that is the big mystery. And this is why I believe that AI, in the way we understand it to be, will never be conscious, but it will be able to simulate the fact that it's conscious by using the applications of Searle's Chinese Chinese room hypothesis. And that goes down to emotional responses and all of it. It's a facsimile that is so beautiful in a way. I mean, it was the whole idea behind the Tyrell Corp, right? More human than mm. human. Yes, it was indeed. The idea, and of course, um, 
one of my, one of my one of my Facebook friends and somebody I'm in contact with is the actress who played Rachel. Oh yeah, Sean. Sean yeah. Young, you know, and she's an interesting lady. Um, and indeed, she acted in a, um, a, a recent um, short movie, um, which was directed and written by one of my friends. Uh, she came over to the UK to actually act in it, which is well worth checking out if you get the opportunity. There's details on my website. But clearly, this is the central point of the whole concept. And it comes down to, yet again, empathy. Yes. Doesn't it? You know, <laughs> and, the, and again, the counter argument then, you know, talk about psychopaths. And what is a psychopath? A psychopath is, is somebody who really doesn't have empathy for other human beings. And then we have the argument, you know, are there people out there who are in technical terms, I'm not using the horror movie term here, I'm using the psychological, neurological term of zombies. Yes. These are individuals who actually there's nothing going on inside. Yes. That's what's really going on. And that's a, a big note and something I've pondered and we ponder here. Uh, unfortunately, you do have to go. And I am I ever grateful, Tony Peak, for you coming to the Cosmic Salon. Could you tell us how people may access your work in the world and where they find you yeah. and all that? Yeah, no, absolutely. By finding me, you just put Anthony Peak in a Google search and you'll get thousands and thousands of references. Um, if you're interested in, in more definitely, I'm very active on Facebook as Anthony Peak. You'll find me quite easily. Um, I have my own YouTube channel. Uh, which you can find by just putting in Anthony Peak in YouTube or Eladion01. We won't talk about Eladion01 because it'll confuse you. Just look for <laughs> Anthony Peak, you'll find my YouTube channel. Every Monday afternoon, I do my own podcast, which is called Incon, APCH Incon. Uh, that goes out live on my live on my Facebook site every Monday. Every month, I do something called uh, Anthony Peak Consciousness Hour, which goes out. Again, you just Google that, you will find that. If you want to buy my books, just you can go into your local bookshop. Some of some of the books will be on the bookshelves if they're not you can order them from your bookshop you can order them on amazon my books are in kindle my books are in ebook copy they're in hard hard copy and they're also in audible with me reading them with the exception of my latest book um so my books are there they're available please check them out please read them the books are the infant books are, what i've presented today is just a tenth if not a hundredth of what's in the books yes. so please check yes. them out Thank you so much, Tony. This is a great honor and pleasure, and I hope to have you back. Okay, Nish, it's been wonderful. I'd love to come back. Okay, then. Bye-bye. 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 And there he goes, the one and only Tony Peak, And that's anthonypeak.com. I would like to thank... The producers of this wonderful show, Christy Tesmer, Jason Lamson, Marcy Shapiro, Marin Kramer, Melanie Poe, Michael Watcher, Santa Rebecca, and Patrick Newland. This was tantalizing, and I hope that our minds are becoming more malleable, more open, the plasticity that is needed to move forward and pivot into a new reality is centered, I think, 
somehow and mysteriously so, in the blackness of inner space, that which is our brain. Until next time, thank you for joining me in the Cosmic Salon. The dreamer loves the dream. The dreamer feeds the dream. The dreamer awakens within the dreams.